BAFTA creates platforms for open debate, and so the views expressed in this programme are only those of the contributors. Hello and welcome to the BAFTA podcast. My name is Dave Green and today I'm joined by a fascinating selection of filmmakers nominated by BAFTA this year for their outstanding debuts. We'll be celebrating their success, talking about the struggle of getting their cinematic vision to the screen and finding out which choices were the results of planning and which were happy accidents. Now I'm not saying that just by listening to these filmmakers' experiences you're definitely going to win a BAFTA in the future, but it can't hurt, can it? So I'm very fortunate to have with me in the studio all those filmmakers behind this year's outstanding debuts. The Imposter, Wild Bill, McCullen and I Am Nazarene. Now, just in case the listeners haven't been as diligent as me at watching all the DVDs, let's go around the room and refresh our memory on what the films are about. Can we start with uh, brother and sister collaboration Jackie and, and David Morris? David's pointing to Jackie. <laughs> so it seems, seems like you've, you've been nominated. Uh, yes, I'm tell, tell us more about McCullen. Okay, McCullen is a documentary about the legendary photographer Don McCullen. I used to work for him. In fact, I still do work for him. I was his assistant for 20 years, hence my uh, access to him. Uh, jumping around the table, we've got another duo there. The makers of Wild Bill is uh, director Dexter Fletcher and his co-writer Danny King. So are, are you used to giving a, a snappy synopsis of Wild Bill? No, but I'm always willing to try. Wild Bill is a father and son story, really about a man who's a boy and a boy who's a man and uh, their journey together to become a family, a reunited family. So that's Dexter there. And that's it, my do, version do, of it. Do, Danny's might be completely do you, different. Do you agree, Danny? Is, is that what your collaboration is? I don't recognise it at all. No, no, no. Yeah, no, no, that's it in a nutshell. It's about a guy who doesn't really like many of us appreciate what he's got until it's been taken away from him and it's only when he starts actually working at it he, he gets out what he puts in. We've also got the producer of The Imposter, Dimitri Deganis. So without, without giving away some of the amazing spoilers, can you describe what happens in the film? The Imposter is basically the story of a 13-year-old boy goes missing in Texas and three years later he reappears in Spain, in a children's home in Spain. The parents are told and are amazed because he's been presumed dead after three and a half years. So the boy who would now be 16 is is gone and met by his sister, but he's changed a lot in the intervening years. The blonde, blue-eyed, all-American boy is now dark-haired, dark-eyed, speaks with a thick French accent, and as the title suggests, all is not as it seems. And completing the circle is the writer-director of I Am Nazarene, Tina Garavi. Tina, hello. Hello. I Am Nazarene, it's quite an unusual film. How do you describe it to people? It's a film that starts off in Iran. It's a coming-of-age story of Nazarene, a 16-year-old girl who has to learn to overcome quite a lot and arrives in the northeast of England. I think that pretty much sums it up. So uh, I should emphasise that we're recording this the day before the BAFTA Outstanding Debut uh, Award is announced. So no one, no one, especially me, knows who's going to win. But it's fantastic to, to have you all here and to, to celebrate the success of all your films today. Thank you all for coming. So, before we get into the hows and whys of these features, I can't help noticing that although this is the debut category, you've all been on film sets before. So, Dimitri, you've worked in television for a while. Can you give us a sense of your career? Yeah, well, The Imposter is the first theatrical film that I've done, but I've spent the last 15 years, I guess, 
making documentaries and news reports in one form or another. So I started off in news as a cameraman and producer working for a fairly downhill 24-hour cable news station. And then um, after that started pitching and making documentaries as a one-man band doing everything in all sorts of weird places from Vietnam, Cambodia, Iraq, Cuba, all over the place. And then for the last 10 years have been running an independent production company doing various different kinds of documentaries for British and American broadcasters. And Dexter, you're, you're, yep. no, you're no stranger to, uh, to a bit being in TV and film. Did you, yeah. did you pick up tips for, the, for directing all, all that time? Uh, I, I suppose I must have done. I mean, yeah, that's, you know, once, once you've spent a significant amount of your time and life on, on sets and in and around filmmaking and theatre and television, yeah, yeah, I think it's just, I mean... It's a, almost a given that you, you you pick things up, but I think anyone in our industry, uh, invariably, in my experience, gets involved because they have an interest and a passion for filmmaking and and the whole process. And so, um, you know, it's very rare that someone can just wake up and say, "Hey, I'm going to be a filmmaker." It's a long road, you know, and and there's a lot of work and hard hard work and dedication and passion that goes into that, and and just arriving at something that's nominated is 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 not the first stop along the along the the route it's invariably a, a long and, and a hard process but uh, uh yeah i was very fortunate i i, I yeah I, I grew up on film sets that's kind of like my, my natural habitat so uh i yeah it was a very comfortable place for me to be jackie so you've been working for the photographer don mccullin uh, but how did the idea for the film develop well uh, my background really is in theater when i left school i worked um backstage in theaters in rep and then i came to the west end and you know worked on some of the big musicals like singing in the rain and Les Miserables, and it was back backstage making sets and props and, you know, backdrop painting. So, yeah, it was theatre mainly. And then I started working with photographers and um, directors as an, as an assistant and doing similar, similar work to what I was doing in theatre. And then I moved into casting. And David, I mean, is, is this the first time that the, the two of you have worked together? Well, no, I mean, we've worked together in advertising. We're, we're sort of in the casting. We had, we, had a, we, had, we had a couple of studios in the West End where we sort of auditioned, where people would um, hire the, the places to you know, auditions. And so we've been sort of, I've always been a sort of around that kind of world, but mostly through Jackie, really. It's sort of, it's, you know, she sort of brought me t- to London and said, you've got to work for me. So I've just sort of done a... The streets done, are paved with gold, she They said, are, actually. Yes, that's yeah. the they are, yeah. so, what's <laughs> it or, or bubble gum i'm yeah. not quite sure which <laughs> tina you've made documentaries in the past but yeah. that, but this is this is the first film of, your, of yours that's had a wide sort of uh, theatrical release but <laughs> you're pulling a face there no i'm just trying to think what you've left me to say um, but, so yeah. what, what, what was it about i am nazarene that you thought oh we like we should make a this is a cinematic story Initially, it could have been a documentary. So I invited a whole bunch of asylum seekers, refugees to come and tell me their stories and through process-orientated work, work with them to hear what was happening and devised a kind of project out of it. And that, you know, over eight years became I'm Nazarene. But I think that I was just conscious of um, what's the best way of conveying this story because I was keen to get young teenagers to understand why do people come from somewhere else so they don't go around killing them. And drama has an amazing ability to make you empathise and care about and leave the cinema seeing something through their eyes rather than documentary, which I also love very much, but it kind of can sometimes be very didactic and preachy and make you feel like you're being told something. So, I mean, obviously good documentary not, but 
maybe I just didn't think I could be good enough in documentary and made a fiction film. And was that a motivation for you, Dimitri, to feel that you were going to make a documentary that would be a popular thing to see in cinemas? Yeah, definitely. I totally relate to that notion of what documentary can be as this. It's almost like something that you should watch rather than you want to watch. I've always felt that was wrong and that fiction and script writers don't have a lock on entertainment or on great storytelling and that actually some of the most striking and brilliant stories out there are true stories, whether they exist on screen as scripted or documentary. So with The Imposter, from the very beginning, we were really clear that it was going to play as a thriller. But the director's not here, but certainly that was the kind of vision that he had very strongly and that we both shared, that this was going to be something which was that was structured in, in the same way that you would structure a script that played out in the same way that the twists and turns were something that the audience would go along on the ride for. So that was a really deliberate thing to make a documentary that would play like a thriller, that would play like a scripted feature. Because like I say, I think some of the most extraordinary stories are true stories. And there's no reason why we shouldn't tell them with the real people in them. And of course, the, the other person who's, who's doing something a bit different is Danny. And so and what, what, did Wild Bill ever start out as an idea for a book? Because you've written novels before. No, no, no. I mean, the idea came from Dexter. I mean, uh, I, was a, I was a novelist for uh, a long time and, and working in the magazine industry. And uh, Dexter had, uh, and Jason and his friend Jason Fleming had, had optioned one of my books, which we tried to uh, uh, get off the ground and make into a film, which, which just never happened. But along the way, I got to know him and uh, he'd occasionally run ideas past me and we'd work on other scripts and stuff. And and then he, he mentioned at the back of one conversation some idea about uh, a, a father getting out of prison to find his his young son left to fend for himself on a, on a rough estate. And the whole, the father is the son and the son is the father. And I just I sat up thinking about it one night and I, I kind of had an idea of the structure and the form of how it could go. And I, I suggested it to Dexter and he said, yeah, yeah, you know, let's, let's meet up and have a chat about it. And that's what happened. You know what I felt like about? I felt like it was almost like a Western. Mm. Set in a, you know, it's got that kind of structure of a Western in some ways in that someone, someone returns to a place and, and actually they've got a past that's shady and they've left the past behind. But actually in order to rescue their present they need to return to the past and kind of transgress that's the thing that they swore off this violent past that they'd sworn off in the past they actually have to go back and become that person and through that that kind of becoming that violent man again they redeem if not themselves at least the people around them that they love and it's an act of self-sacrifice and that felt like to me it felt like a western that part of the reason I thought it was so great is it felt like a western transposed to a, a London housing estate. Well, it, it, I mean, basically one of our influences, one of my favourite films is, is Unforgiven by yeah. Clint Eastwood. And the reason I love, I love that film is because, unlike a lot of Clint Eastwood films, you actually get a sense of, you know, violence is a horrible thing. And all the way through it, everyone's talking about, they're all giving it the big end about, you know, I've done this and I've killed a man and I... Hit, you know, but Clint Eastwood is the real horrible, violent one, and you only see him come to the fore at the end, and you realise his reputation. And actually, and we kind of wanted to. I suggest we kind of sort of talked about this and Shane and other sort of westerns. Mm. And I think Dexter then took that onto a level and maybe used it. You know, saw it as a, as a theme for the whole thing. I was like just to wrap up this section. Would any of you now go back to your day jobs? Are you, are you gonna are you gonna keep making these sorts of films? I haven't got one to go back to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I can't afford not to. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't want not to carry on making film now. You know, given the opportunity, it's such a long road to get there. It's like once once the door opens, it would uh, seem... It similar. is. Actually, what's nice about the film industry, though, I mean, I feel I had to do a Q&A online yesterday, and it said, you know, what was your plan B? And the thing with the film industry, I mean, I'm sort of a bit like you, Dexter, in that you spend your whole... I mean, all my working life has mm-hmm. been spent on a film set doing one thing mm-hmm. or another, or mm-hmm. in a photographer's mm-hmm. studio, and I've done catering and prop building and da 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 So you don't need a plan B. You can always find something to do. There is a, there's always a way of earning a living in the film industry. And it's very easy to, um, you know, forget that really. And, you know, in this age when it's all about qualification, I mean, I've got a 17 year old son and, you know, it's all about qualifications and planning their careers. And, and it just isn't like that with the film industry, is it? I mean, you no, can start my, off being a runner mm-hmm. and here we all are. But I wouldn't say it's easy to get into it. I mean, if you're if you're, you know, on, on a, a, a council estate in the northeast and 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 or in London, or you say you want to work in the film industry, it, it's like saying I want to go to Pluto for a lot of these lads. Yeah, I live on that council estate in the northeast, and I try and teach young people to want to get in the film industry, and it is incredible. There is a huge barrier between the perceptions of where you belong. And what what you can do, and and I think those are the things that we're challenging by the types of films that are made and by the types of people that I'm seeing around this table. Is is there's a real diversity? People need to be able to imagine that they belong in a place before sometimes they can have that aspiration. The thing that I'm always struck by as well is there's all of these perceived barriers to pe- young people getting in, and it's but at the same time there's this massive hunger for good, energetic ambitious passionate young people coming up if you're struggling to think how do I break in the one thing that to comfort you is people want you like people are desperate Mm. for that next generation that next Mm. wave of whatever it is it doesn't matter where you start because they're willing to work for nothing well it's not just that it's (laughs) because they're willing to work it's because we it's because people need ideas they need that energy and and, and there are so many people who there are not enough good people in this industry and that's what I always tell that's what I do as my day job is I teach and the only thing I say is if you're good enough you will get there if you want it for the right reasons it is an easy industry to create your own work I mean, I did. We, you know, we didn't live on a council estate, but not far off. We certainly didn't, you know, we weren't born with silver spoons in our mouth. And we went to the local big old comp in the 70s up in Northampton. And, you know, I created my own drama group. And it still is an industry that you can... And of course, it's, it's, there may well be sort of barriers these days, but they're far less than they were... 50 years ago I mean there's there's far more sort of product being made and there's, there's the internet and, and you and, can and, and that's because of things like YouTube David that's what, yeah. yeah exactly and so yes there are barriers and, it, and for some people it is like you know saying I, I want to go to Pluto but it's better than it, it ever was and I think it, it will only get better you know, the, the ease of it's like going to and, Mars isn't it yes now? exactly it's not <laughs> yeah. and filmmaking film is so much cheaper now you know I mean I'm amazed at you know some of the little films that my son and his friends make and they can do it on a you know on a phone or a little camera and it doesn't cost them anything edit it themselves and all those things that we couldn't do when we were young Excellent. Well, that, that's an encouraging point to, to, I think, wrap up that little bit of it. Let's talk about uh, all of these uh, individual debuts and uh, being uh, just a little bit out of your depth occasionally. Dexter and Danny, can you tell us what your first day of, of shooting was like on Wild Bill? Tell them what the first day was all right and then tell them what the second day was like. 
Uh, okay, so uh, yeah, the first day of shooting, physical shooting, was very cold, but good. We had Andy Circus come in and do a couple of scenes for us, which was one of our star turns. It's always good to pull in a face if you can do that favour. Uh, but the second day it snowed and we were meant to be exteriors and it's just one of the massive challenges of filmmaking you know once that train's moving uh, you can't suddenly say well we're, it's, it's, we don't want snow and we've got it so you have to kind of adapt and work around it it's one of the challenges of, of making a film but maybe a, a low budget film that you know you have to once the train is moving you can't you can't just stop. So uh, yeah, we we adapted on the fly and kind of you know changed things. And there's uh, that there's that scene in the cafe that was I think was meant to be set at a bus stop, and you can see over Charlie Creed Miles's shoulder. It's absolutely stunning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it snowing. It's absolutely yeah. sleeping it's down. Yeah, there's a blizzard out there but you know every film is going to present its unique challenges. That's that's the thing about it. I mean, what I learned very starkly and I did kind of know it is that a schedule really for shooting is a start date and a finish date and you've just got to fit everything in between those two dates and what order it falls in is really fairly random it's in an ideal world the schedule would work exactly as you've scheduled it or scheduled it to happen but invariably it doesn't people get ill or it snows or you know trucks don't turn up and you know you have to be adaptable so it was thrilling and exciting on a daily basis hour by hour it's, it sounds it so and david and jackie were you working to a very a very fixed schedule yeah in fact we we the our start date was because it was snowing don's always turned offers down for people to document his life he's never wanted to do it but as he was the one that suggested i go into directing i said okay fine now i'll, I'll start with you so he couldn't really say no. And he phoned me one day and he said, it's going to snow tomorrow. It'll look lovely down here because he lives in Somerset. He said, get down here, get down here. And he's used to working with just himself and his little 35mm camera so he can just get in his car and go off and do it. And he doesn't realise that even with a documentary, you've got a crew to put together and, you know, it's a bit of a circus. So, but, you know, so, so we, we got it together quickly and we got down there first thing the next day and it was stunning and for those of you who have seen the film those opening shots of the sunset in the snow are wonderful but it had a very dramatic twist to it because you know I've known Don for a long time and I've walked those hills with him a lot and he was really struggling this day he was finding it very difficult to um, breathe and move and he said oh you know so I think I've got a bit of a chest infection but I'm going to see the doctor tomorrow so anyway he went to see the doctor tomorrow and basically was told that he had inoperable heart disease, probably from years of printing his own work in the days when, you know, chemicals weren't what they are now. So he was given a very short time to live, you know, just a few weeks. So that was the start to our film. But he really wanted to carry on with the film. And luckily, because I know him, and I know his pictures, and I know those stories. I could be very, very precise with what I wanted from him. So we really parred it down, and we had lots of breaks in between the interviews. So our shoot was really only, a, in total, probably three and a half days, 18 months in the edit. Big old job in the edit, but, you know, three days shooting. But, in fact, he did go and get a second opinion, and they did operate, and, and he's fine now, so... I'd say so. Yeah, and um, Tina and Dimitri. So you had quite uh, extensive experience making documentaries, but uh, did things still go as, uh, as as you expected? Um, I remember when we were interviewing for a line producer, uh, a very experienced woman came in, and she looked at the script, our budget, and our schedule, and she just said, 
you know, you, you just can't do this. You, this is not physically possible. And I just went, well, you're not getting the job then. It just has to be possible and I have to do this. And um, now I know she was right. Actually, <laughs> that's the only thing I've gone back to her and said, you know what? You were right. This is this was impossible. But in some way, you find a way to do it because I don't know whether it's some kind of a snow blindness or you have this target fixation or you just think, oh, screw it, I'm just going to do it. And at every single stage, I'm sure everyone here relates is there are always going to be obstacles and you just have to make the best, worst decision you can. And I think there were a lot of uh, derailments on this project, but you just kind of looked for ways of making it really, really nice. And I remember wanting, for example, it to be really grey and horrible and miserable like it sometimes is in the North. And it was uh, the sunniest, brightest, most California summer you could have in the Northeast. But like that translated into a film that really challenged those stereotypes of what the Northeast looks like. And sometimes on a sunny day, it looks pretty damn good. I can just totally relate to that last point because any first time film relies on a huge amount of goodwill from everyone making it because you're asking people to go so far above and beyond what you can pay them for. And that, in a way, is because the team, the director, the producer, the writer, whoever it is, has that passion that can infect other people with this sense that this is a worthwhile project. There's something here to be won. There's a victory to be had. And so you rely on those people. You rely on that enthusiasm to do things that you can never really afford. And weirdly, like now I'm looking at trying the next project, the next film, even if we have more money, I'm not sure we'll be able to do the same thing just because you kind of only get that one shot at that first film kind of, I don't know what it is. It's like some kind of virtue attached to the first time out that people buy into and give you more than you could ever afford. It's like, like a special voucher that you can you can only use once. And kind it's of, right. yeah. It's, it's kind of magical. But the director tells this fantastic story about arriving our first day of the drama shoots was in Spain and we, we found this square that we were going to shoot this that opening sequence in. And he was arriving on his own in a taxi from where, where he'd been staying and he realised as he got there that there was another film shooting in the same square on the same day and it was a much bigger film and there were lighting trucks and there was all of these special effects and there was catering and he was in the taxi thinking oh my god what how are we going to shoot round this other film that's shooting in the same square got out of the taxi wandered into the square and suddenly realised it wasn't another film it was our film and it was just you know it's like a, on, on another kind of another level so that's yeah. that's, that's protect, and, protecting your director well from what the producer's doing it's like this is my film wow <laughs> so, 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 so at least it's, at least it's a pleasant surprise if we could just uh, go around the room and ask is there any piece of advice that you'd pass on to someone making a similar sort of leap in scale to the ones that you've just made I mean it's, it's difficult to say because 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 uh, 
you know, each thing is so specific. Each project, even going round the table here, you know, there's so many specific things that you could detail give an answer on that that would be beneficial. To, you know, if someone comes, you say, I'm trying to make this kind of film or whatever, then maybe you could give a specific... But, you know, like a general piece of advice is kind of stuff that we all I don't know, probably know, you know, work hard and uh, make sure the script's good and the catering's good. And you, I don't know, do you know what I mean? It's, I just recommend you have a very good line producer. Well, yes. yes. Seriously, yeah, yeah. that was... Um, that was one lesson I learnt on this, and I will never make that mistake again. But I think this is the beauty of your debut as well as what you were saying earlier about, you know, if you'd known what you know now, you would have said to that line producer, you're right, but you didn't. And and that's the power of it in a way. You know, it's what, what the voucher is of, of a debut is like, hey, we are doing this and we're doing it the way I understand it's going to work. Whereas a lot of people with a lot more experience may say to you, you're never going to do that. You're kind of blind to hearing that because you're... You're so set on it, and that's the power of it. That's the 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 passion, the motivation. That kind of you got the film made. Mm. There would have been a better way to do it. There's always a better way to do it, but you did get it made, and here we all are. And that's that's the point, I suppose, isn't it? Is that you know you, that that passion can can keep you driving and getting it done. Thanks very much for all those thoughts, and uh, we'll be back after this music. <laughs> So each of the films we're talking about today, as well as being very, very different in content, have had quite different journeys to the screen. And uh, between them, we can hopefully find out about how films are distributed nowadays. So we'll, we'll start with uh, with Tina. <laughs> the film <laughs> that hasn't found any distribution well, yet. It's, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's been a critical success. It has, yes. There's, there's five people who've seen it, really like it a lot. <laughs> I think Mark Cousins said it made him cry, and that's probably our biggest tagline now to, to distributors is... And you've got an endorsement from, from Ben Kingsley. Is is that helpful? And how can people go, go out and find it? Is it video on demand or these it, new channels? It is on video on demand and then we are considering doing a self-distribution. So taking the film around the country in a camper van and showing it to small clusters of people with a bag of chips is the other idea. But we'll see what happens because obviously the nomination has just come very recently and the film has hardly really been seen so so we'll see. But I think that there is a dilemma for distribution for small films, small good films. A lot of the distributors who have seen it said, we really love the film. We're not sure how we know how to find this audience. So online distribution is really changing the game for a lot of people. And it will for us. We think that there's a lot of people who do want to see it. So it has some very universal themes and it's niche audiences based. A lot of people care about asylum, refugee, migration. A lot of people care about gay issues and gypsy traveller issues, which are all in the film, condensed, compressed into this little thing. But hopefully we'll find an audience through word of mouth and, 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 and the profile raising that the BAFTA I was, I was gonna say, so, you, so you're hoping that like, having, having nominations as well and endorsements will help? It's amazing what it's done, yeah. Danny and Dexter, you've gone through quite a, a, a more traditional route to, through, through a cinema release and uh, a now DVD. What were the kind of funding bodies and, th- and things that were involved? Well, there weren't any funding bodies as such other than two very wealthy philanthropic individuals who read the script and believed in the team that were putting it together. And, and so we didn't, we you know, we didn't uh, go through really any traditional funding bodies. What happened is we made the film on spec and Universal picked it up and distributed it. Now, you know, we actually had the same issues as Tina. It's kind of like... 
what is the audience? That's the big question that the that the distributors are asking. And and uh, we had that same response. People love it, really respond to the film and the human emotional story and get it and get it. But it's then they've got to find a way of packaging it and getting it out there so that as many people as possible are going to go and see it and spend their eight quid or whatever it is to go into the, the cinema or the theatre and see it. And, you know, there's various different versions of, of how that, that, that could have played out. But it was traditional in one sense. We had a great big distributor come on and give it a very wide theatrical release, but there's there's millions of ways of doing it, and was that the right way or wasn't it? That that remains to be seen. I mean, you know, we've got a critical success, but... I think after this, all of us should talk about distribution privately. Yeah. <laughs> and share what we've, yeah, we know absolutely. of. Because it's, it, you or, have to go in... any detail, any tricks oh, well, that you can be share. a whole new podcast, okay, We actually. could just give yeah. you a box of DVDs for your camper van. <laughs> but, 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 yeah. <laughs> in, that could be it. I could be a distributor <laughs> by a camper van of... Great British independent films. But in, in both of your cases, you didn't think very much about uh, a target audience or, you know, you didn't have a demographic in mind when you were originally making the film. You know, if you're thinking about demographics and target audiences, you're talking about a whole big, you know, machine that is trying to engineer and build something that comes from a very different place, from an independently made film that's about a passionate subject that we all care about. You, you know, it's... You engineer of a demographic mm, into a story. I mean, you just, yeah. you have to... F- I mean, certainly, I think that is not a creative. It's just not the way, way you go to about start. It. it is done, but they generally fail. Right. Yeah, I'm sure. No, well, mm-hmm. well, actually, I'm sure it is done, and I'm sure there are huge Hollywood blockbusters which totally well, rely on that. Yeah. But, but that's mm. that's a very different kind of endeavor. And I think mm. every, you know, around this table, everything started as a passion project for the you know people at the creative heart of it, and something that they had to make and wanted to make. And that's not about thinking. Hmm, what is my demographic and what's the marketing strategy for this film? It's about thinking, here's a story I'm desperate to tell. And then either by luck, good judgment, critical acclaim or whatever, you hope that those stories go out and find a market. We did have a sort of a slight advantage in some ways that Don did have a big following anyway. You know, he's got a lot of books in print and he's quite high profile within that with people who are who are interested in that kind of thing. I mean, I think... Distribution seems to be getting to be a lot easier now for smaller independent films because art house cinemas are showing much more commercial films as well now and they're bringing in a whole new audience. And because their programming is so much more flexible, you know, the independent cinemas rather than the big multiplexes, it's making room for films like ours. I mean, McCullen is on all over the country, but it might be three days here, two days there. You know, The Imposter was different. That was a much more, you know, yours is a much more commercial mainstream film. So you had a, you know, a big wide... But it's probably playing in the same cinema. Um, yeah, I, I think it's yeah. Curzon and yeah. stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, Curzon you know, and Picture House. Sorry, Dimitri, were you, were you involved in, in that discussion in terms of getting it into cinemas? Or yeah. Was it, that, was, that was always the goal. Yeah, absolutely. And we raised the money from it. I mean, we because my background's in television as in Barts, the first people we went to to try and get funding from it was the broadcasters we knew. So we went to Channel 4 and Film 4 who put a little bit of money in and, and but were incredibly supportive. And we went to an American broadcaster we'd done a series for and their kind of film division and tried to persuade them to put a little bit of money in. And then the film was lucky enough to be accepted at, in competition at Sundance. So Sundance then was like this hothouse where everyone was looking at it thinking... What's going to happen here? Is anyone going to buy the film? Is anyone going to, you know, at that point, distributors are looking at all of these films that don't have deals and thinking, 
all of this was new to me, by the way. So it was a massive learning curve and thinking, okay, we'll make an offer for this film. And we were incredibly lucky, in the, certainly in the UK, that a distributor called Revolver came in for the film and agreed to market it as a thriller, which is what we were all about. So we didn't want it to be marketed as a documentary because we thought that was more niche than the story we wanted to tell. And you look at films like Senna, you know, Senna was marketed, just had, I don't know if you remember the post, it was brilliant, just had a helmet. Mm. And there was no notion it was a documentary, it was just like an exciting film. And so we were incredibly lucky in that we found a great partner in Revolver who also were teamed up with or co-owned in some way with the Picture House cinema chain and that enabled it to get to get into cinemas and we just felt like if you can market it as a doc uh, not as a documentary but as a, a thriller then once people are in the theatres they won't be disappointed and certainly in the UK we seem to we seem to be lucky in that regard and uh, Jackie and David do you think festivals are still useful in terms of spreading the word no as hasn't as hasn't done well at festivals at all weirdly critically acclaimed we've got incredible reviews and feedback and you know film of the week by mark mode and i've had a really lovely very successful theatrical run but it just hasn't been a festival film <laughs> i don't know why yeah yeah it's a bit odd I, we didn't also find a festival window at all and i think it was something is broken in the system at the moment in distribution and festivals i think the audience is aren't quite understood by the people who are supposed to be feeding those audiences because certainly when the film has played we've had like 75% full and the people leaving the cinema are really appreciative of it and we're just like doesn't anybody want to make money off this film and we're showing them the box office and they're still not figuring out that there's money there to be made and I think it's just a limitation on how they view what you can do with small projects and I think it's it's a transition period we're in like you said there's probably a lot of small films that are going to do well but right now distribution doesn't know how to pick those smaller things up and take them to the audience. I, I think there's different ways of looking at it I think you could say that about traditional distributors but there's lots of people who are self-distributing their films you know I think of Pulse and Shut Up and Play the Hits, which is this, it's a music documentary, but it's got, just like you were saying, Tina, there's a very clearly identified audience for it, which are the fans of the band. And through social media and through other connections, they're able to reach out to those people and say, it's going to be, the thing that you are interested in is going to be playing for one night in your town on this day. And they get great audiences for that, or organised events. So I think there is a way in which small films can be successfully distributed but it's a different model from the traditional one which most distributors are still operating and with. and again they they had a bit of a sense of like you know it will be lcd sound system fans like that they and that's the core but in, you know tina was just saying that she's she has already identified the kind of core constituencies that her film will appeal to there's a way in which you can go and talk directly to those people without needing actually a distributor or probably press even but because there's social media and there's other ways of reaching people now um, so it just requires that kind of flexibility and inventiveness yeah I think it's just more filmmakers adjusting their idea of what their role is on a film after it's finished is that you just you're actually going to continue on with it a lot longer than you may have thought that's right, would. and I, I had a really good, interesting conversation with the produ- one of the producers of Exit Through the Gift Shop, which was incredibly successful, the Banksy documentary a couple of years ago. 
And they basically toured that film. They self-distributed in the States and toured that film for over a year. And it was very commercially successful, but it was a full-time job of self-distributing the film because the traditional distribution method actually just doesn't fit. It doesn't work for those kind of films in the same way that it may not work for other smaller films. That's not to say you can't make money doing it, but it requires another level of inventiveness or another well, no, but that but that's but that's what's kind of seems to work about the self-distribution is like you understand exactly what the film is who it's for and so kind of you're getting it out there and connecting it to those people who want to see it whereas you know wild bill for example you know they take it as a product and then there's a whole bunch of people who sit around in a room and they they're not directly passionately linked to it they're just trying to out it as a as a mass product and, and then that's where the massive disconnected but is is, is that's the full time thing is you know to take it on tour for a year you're the one yeah. who's connected to it you can get the message out there can so. I actually just say something because I haven't mentioned our distributor and they have been you know we're, we've been incredibly blessed to have a great distributor on board Artificial Eye no, nice, nice to hear a good story. Well, well let's, yeah, yeah. let's move on to some tweets. This one is from, from Ed Rigg, who says, what key element was it that allowed you to have a shot at making a feature? And again, anyone can jump in here. I guess he means, was there something, a kind of practical jump where you suddenly thought, oh, we can now make this as a feature? What is it that made that difference? I would say probably Dexter's phone book, because he knew a lot of people... And he could call in a lot of, you know, you know once you start getting people who, who say yes, then you can go, you know, actors come on board and you call in a lot of favours. Mm. He knew a lot of people in the industry. He could put a lot of it in place before we needed a penny. And then you actually go towards... <laughs> yeah, it's go, happening anyway. Yeah. And, 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 I, and, and you know, basically contacts, really. I, I think it is that. I mean, it's, uh, you know, on, on a broader scale, it is that, you know, we, we all have a lot of experience and a long history in the industry. And, and it's uh, it's not like suddenly one thing dropped into, into place. No, but you have your experience and you and you do, you, you bring that into, into play. You know, it's... Um, I would say experience and that connection. Uh, and, so, and, and, and again, so Jack, Jackie and David. So you already had uh, the the connection with Don McCullin. And yeah. so, but, I mean, and actually, I mean, I'm looking at your documentary. What struck me is is how much archive is how much how much film footage you have from that era. And sometimes there'll be there'll be a still, there'll be one of Don's stills, and then there'll be film of that event actually happening. And uh, did, did you know that that footage existed? No, we because we were very, very lucky that, you know, that, that there was quite a lot of archive of the places that he actually went to. So we were sort of blessed with that. It wasn't luck. I did a well, yeah, load of, <laughs> shitload of work finding it, to be honest. Experience. Yeah. Experience. It is all down to experience. Yes, we were very lucky in that we had, uh, you know, I was friends with Don McCullen and he has a huge following, but it's not on a plate to you. And all those years of experience, you know, I had to, I, it wasn't commissioned, didn't have a lot of money to make it. So I ended up having to do a lot. I did all the research, you know, I did a lot of the editing, a, a huge amount of work. And that only came from years and years of experience. I was going to say, I think there is, there is normally one thing which takes things from an idea into a, being able to make your first feature, which I think is what the questioner mm-hmm. is asking. It might be the phone book. It might be the access. In our case, it was that first interview that we did completely on spec with the imposter himself. And the way in which that was done was the thing which tipped it. And so, again, as Dexter said, that came from getting him and getting him in the way we did 
wasn't an accident. There's elements of chance in it, but it it wasn't accidental. It was something. It was the culmination of a lot of work on a lot of different things and a lot of practicing on with a lot of other projects which which hadn't come off and all the rest of it. But I think there is often one thing. It's like getting the property, and it might be Danny's script, or it might be the access to Don, or it might be the fact that you've got these this incredible story that's fallen into your lap. But there's normally there is there is a thing where you go from I would like to make a film to we're going to make this film and we're going to be able to do it. Well, you see, these are good answers to the, to this tweet. Uh, Talia Al Ghul, who I think might be a Batman villain. I think anyway, he or she tweets. Oh, this is this is specifically for the imposter. What is it about producing documentaries that that appeals to you so much? I mean, you've you've covered the the kind of drama, but do you feel it's also a new audience that that, that are out there for for documentaries? I don't know whether it's a new audience or not. I actually shrink away from the notion of a documentary audience I don't really want to make things for a documentary audience I want to make great stories and I'm not that hung up on whether they are documentary or scripted feature or or however you define them and actually I think the imposter goes some way to blurring the boundaries between these different categories but I do think that there is this incredible that, that great stories have a truth at their heart whether that is a literal truth or a kind of you know something a bit more kind of metaphysical but there is something incredibly powerful about true stories and there's something often true about powerful stories fantastic and just one one more tweet might might be another short answer for dexter fletcher why Mm. did you want to direct why yes um because I, wow, that's really, I've, I've been acting for 40 years and I thought maybe it's a, it was an opportunity to do time, time something Time to start giving different. out the instructions. I, you know, no, yeah, I, it's, it's not... Um, People have been not, shouting at him for 40 years, he wanted to shout at someone else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I, it's, I don't know why it's not an easy question to answer, but it, but it isn't. Um, it was about having a story that I wanted to tell. I wanted to make a film. I'd been, you know, involved in film all my life. And as, as a kid, I enjoyed making films with my brother with a little cine camera. And, you know, it was something that's part of my world. And I wanted to, you know, the interesting thing about our industry is that it creates a career. And a career means that you can move around. You're not just on a very set one track path you can be doing lots of different things and the whole spectrum is open to you if you're willing to go out and and make a go and grab that element of it and when one one avenue turns into a cul-de-sac and seemingly finishes then change direction and find something else that that inspires you and and kind of keeps you productive and creative and excited and and that's what is the real exciting and wonderful thing about our industry any one of us could be doing the job that any other one is doing around this table to a degree do you know what i mean you could i could suddenly go right i want to make a documentary or you know and similarly you know you could be making a feature next it's not a closed uh shop and that's what's exciting about it so when the opportunity arose, I I jumped at it because I'd never done it before. But why, why not? Yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so yeah. that 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 tweet was from uh, Buck and Boy or, or Jay Innes, as he also seems to be called. Th- thank you for everyone who who sent in all those tweets. And our time now in the studio is sadly drawing to a close. But before we go, I'd like to find out a bit a bit about what you're all up to next. So uh, Jackie and David, would would you do another another documentary about a, a photographer, or what do you have in mind? I've got two projects in mind. <laughs> Can you, talk, can you talk? No, I can't talk. Okay. Unfortunately, I can't talk about them. Though I'm busting to, but um, are, are they? No, I, can't. Sim- sim- I started one. Are they on a similar scale? Bigger, smaller? Bigger. Right. 
McCullen too. Yeah. This, time, this time it's He's personal. Yeah. Yeah. Electric yeah. boogaloo. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Dexter or Danny, I mean, you know, you seem to have come through this process unscathed. Would you work together again? I don't know if I can afford him. <laughs> yeah, we'd work together yeah, again. Yeah. yeah, I think that's that's a distinct possibility. Tina, you'd spent years uh, working on on I Am Nazarene. Would, would yeah, you I'm would slow. you try try would you try and bring the next one in in like a shorter time frame or? Yeah, I don't want to. Th- this was particularly agonising for, for a huge re- number twenty twenty release. Or, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean I'm I'm planning on capitalising on all of this and making something very very commercial. I'm officially selling out. So a, a superhero movie, something um, like that. So. Girls, guns, and motorcycles coming up soon. <laughs> that's oh, I love that. Uh, that's just as a title. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a title, man. That's brilliant. Uh, and finally, Dimitri, you know, I, I, are you all, you're always on the lookout for more, more true stories you can do in that format? Yeah, we think we've got two. Not, I, I mean, it won't be the same format, but there are two projects we're working on at the minute. One is fully scripted. And the other is a kind of bastard mashup, I suppose. But both are have real events at their heart and both fall into that category of if they weren't true, you couldn't make it up. Well, th- th- thank you all very much for, for coming in today and uh, sharing your expertise and experience. Of course, best of luck in what you do next and whatever happens in the Outstanding Debut Awards. We already won. Yeah, yeah, we did. You're always. So that discussion was in March 2013, just a day before the awards took place. And the winner of Outstanding Debut, I can non-exclusively reveal, was... Bart Layton and Dimitri Deganis for The Imposter. Well done to them. And I should also say that James Bobin was unable to join us for the recording. He was busy shooting a new film at the time. So, before we go, there's just time to look through the notice board here at BAFTA HQ and let you know what's happening in May. On the 1st, we're at the ICA in London for a directing masterclass with Matt Whitecross, the director of Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll and the forthcoming Spike Island. He'll be discussing his diverse career across TV, features and documentaries. At BAFTA HQ on the 9th, we've got a special preview of ITV drama The Suspicions of Mr Witcher 2, followed by a Q&A with its stars Paddy Considine and Olivia Coleman. Tickets are £7.50. We're at Fact in Liverpool on the 22nd of May. Production manager Anita Overland will be talking about her experience on projects such as The Iron Lady and The Red Riding Trilogy. And we're back in London on Thursday the 23rd at the BFI Southbank for a makeup masterclass with Lois Burwell from films such as Lincoln, Braveheart and Saving Private Ryan. More details can be found on BAFTA.org by clicking the What's On button. Don't forget that all the events we've discussed here are available at BAFTA.org guru, on soundcloud.com BAFTA and on iTunes. And you can get all the latest news on upcoming BAFTA events by signing up for our fortnightly newsletter on BAFTA.org. If you've been inspired by any of the topics described in this podcast, or if you have any feedback, please get in touch at podcast at BAFTA.org. Also, why not rate us on iTunes and help us climb the charts? That's all for today. My thanks to our guests, Dimitri Duganis, Tina Garavi, Danny King, Dexter Fletcher, and David and Jackie Morris. My name's Dave Green, the producer was Matt Hill, with production help from John Maloney and Katie Campbell. Now stop listening to podcasts and go and actually make that thing you're always going on about. Goodbye. Goodbye.